When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to The Paddock in the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello everyone. With Cheltenham over, the focus now turns to Aintree and the Grand National. Joining us today is sports writer David Owen, who has just written a book about the 1975 Grand National winner, Lescargo, the horse that foiled Red Rum. Thanks for joining me, David. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. What prompted you to write No Snail, a book about Lescargo, Grand National winner and dual Cheltenham Gold Cup winner? Well, I, I was looking for a good story ever since uh, the previous racing book I did about Foynhaven. And uh, it was just a gradual accumulation of facts about Lescargo. I, I, I realised what a good story he was. It's not just the 75 Grand National. He was He's one of only two horses to have won the Gold Cup as well. Um, and there was also an American angle. Uh, which is quite unusual for, for for British and Irish racehorses. He he, he ran in some good races uh, in the United States. He was also owned by an interesting character, Raymond Guest, who used to be the US ambassador to Ireland. And his trainer was interesting as well. Both Guest and Dan Moore, the the, the trainer in Ireland, uh, were the desperate to win a Grand National for the best part of half a century, both of them. And in 1975, their dream finally came true. Uh, so it's a combination of all those things. And I also, I actually couldn't believe nobody had written a book either about Lescargo himself or even about Tommy Carberry, his jockey, who uh, was, as you know, an, a, a, a tremendous horse. The combination of all those three things, all, all those things, really. You must been you must have been reading my uh, prompt cards here. Uh, <laughs> hey, and, and were well, you a fan of the the Grand National as well? Because obviously, the dream of winning the nineteen seventy five race. Yeah, uh, yes, I I find myself drawn to endurance. Some people like you know sprint, fast and furious. I, I like things like marathons, the Tour de France. And obviously, the Grand National falls into that category. So, yes, I am drawn by the Grand National. There's, there are so many stories. And, um, you know, almost every year, there's there's something. It's a bit of a cliche. 
say that, but you, but you know, last year with Sam Worley Cohen winning on his last ride, it's it sort of falls into this pattern of of stories that you get from the race year after year. Um, and the other thing I like about horse racing is is the way that um, horse. It's almost like the, the center of its own mini solar system because you've got lots of people oriented around it. You've got you've got the owner, the trainer, jockey, the rivals, the people who've bet on it. And these sort of things are always slightly shifting. Uh, I find that absolutely fascinating. The people it throws together and the sort of shifting alliances, things like that. Um, I, I, I find racing is one of the one of the best sports for story. Grand National is probably the list for races. Well, let, let's talk about the uh, 1975 Grand National um, yeah. when Lescargo foiled Red Rum in his quest to win three Grand Nationals in yes. a row. How had preparations gone for Lescargo ahead of that 1975 race gone? Uh, well, he was very much a veteran by that time. Um, realistically, there was no other good race he was going to win because he wasn't fast enough anymore so unlike most of his previous seasons he had just been aimed exclusively at this race so he'd had um i think only about five races the whole year hadn't performed particularly brilliantly in any of them but was just being gradually geared up for this race and they also had a bit of luck because unlike the previous two years when red rum had won it was a dreadful winter weather one. And so they had soft ground help them a lot when taking on Red Rum because Les Scargo that year was carrying a lighter weight. Yeah, Red Rum's carrying 12 stone, Les Scargo 11 stone three. That's right. Whereas the previous year when Red Rum had beaten him, uh, there was just a one pound difference. So that 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 and plus the previous year, as I say, it was it was good ground, which uh, Red Rum really needed carrying carrying twelve stone. And Red Rum sent off as the seven to two favourite. Only thirty one went thirty one runners in nineteen seventy five and yeah. seventy four. There was forty two. Yeah, um, we we that's before the forty horse limit. But we've we've got used in recent years to um, you know the race being fully and and oversubscribed but that certainly wasn't the case in those days you know there were a lot of problems at Ainge. um this 75 race there was the, the new owner bill davis who'd taken over from mirabel Topman, whose family had had uh had control of the race for a decade um yeah it you know there were, there were one or two grand nationals uh in that sort of period where there there weren't even 30 runners i believe and the race itself, he he was prominent early on, but made a bad mistake at the seventh fence. Oh my goodness! Yes, the, um, the it's now known as the Foynaven fence. It wasn't really um, smallest fence on the course, apart from the water fence. Uh, but it's a fence that jockeys, good jockeys, uh, were quite wary of. Notably, Terry Biddlecombe used to call it the baby hurdle, but he. He had this theory that, especially as it came after Beecher, uh, horses didn't respect it. And it's surprising how many horses have had problems there over the years. Um, Lescargo, obviously, he'd already jumped it several times uh, in his previous Grand National attempts. But for whatever reason, 
he uh, he hit it very hard in this 1975 race. Um, and there's a still photograph uh, that was taken of uh, stride or two after he hit the fence. Arbery is really just about to tumble over the horse's head. His uh, his calf, his left calf, you can see, is parallel parallel to the ground. Uh, it it really is extraordinary how he managed to stay on. Really, the skin of the skin of their teeth that they they kept going. It could could have ruined everything. It really could. It, it knocked him out of his rhythm for, for quite a while in the race. He dropped back to sort of seventh, eighth, ninth for quite a while after that. But with three fences to jump, Red Rum and Lescargo were one and two. Yeah, they were, they were more or less neck and neck. And, uh, you know, if you didn't know the background, you'd think, oh, boy, we're, we're, we're coming up for a grandstand finish here. It's going to, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Actually, um, again, because of the lightweight, he knew how, how well his horse was going. Uh, Carberry was basically, he, he knew by then that if, his horse jumped the remaining fences, they were very likely to win because he was going so easily. Red Rum had this huge weight. He, he, you know, he just knew uh, he had the race in the bag. It was his to lose at that point. There's a story that uh, going over the last fence, Brian Fletcher, Red Rum's jockey, who'd, who'd, who'd always, had, for the previous two years, he'd had Lascar go down as the main danger to them. Uh, there's a story that that he he just said going over the last. Okay, Tommy, you go on. It's, it's, it's your race. He knew he was beaten. Uh, so although it looked very close, um, you know, it, it, the race was was more or less done by then. As long as he didn't uh, make a mistake in the last two or three, they, they'd always been very careful not to let Lascargo uh, take lead too early in his races because like a lot of horses he tended to stop racing at that point once he was in front but he eventually won by 15 lengths yeah well he put it as i say that's when the weight difference really really came into its own he he between the last fence and the elbow is more or less where he put the distance between them you think you know red rum is i think universally regarded as the, the best grand national horse there's ever been and you know, he put 10 lengths between them in a few hundred yards. It's quite an achievement, really. Well, he was a remarkable horse. But I'd like to go back. You mentioned him earlier, Raymond Guest. Uh, yeah. The owner, the US ambassador to Ireland at yes. the time. How did he come to buy Lascargo for 3,000 guineas? Um, there was a uh, an Irish horseman called Tom Cooper, who uh, he had used a relationship with um, because Raymond Guest also owned some very good flat horses, including Derby winners. He'd already uh, won the Derby in 1962 uh, with a horse that Cooper, this man, had found for him. And um, Cooper found him again. And why did he get trained by Dan Moore? Did uh, Raymond Guest have other horses with him? Uh, yes, the first horse he had, the first horse of note at any rate that he had with, with Dan Moore was a, a, a grey mare called Flying Wild, who I think I'm right in saying is the only horse who beat 
the mighty Arkell uh, twice. She actually won a Massey Ferguson gold cup, uh, receiving all sorts of weight, but nonetheless beat him. And uh, in a bumper very early in their career, she didn't win the race, but she finished ahead of Arkell in the race. And Lascargo made his debut on February the 15th, 1967. And one thing I'd like to congratulate you on your book is the excellent stats at the back. They, they make uh, 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 podcast you. prompts very, very, <laughs> very helpful for those. Yeah, well, I, I did that particularly with that in mind, Steve. Obviously, yeah. Uh, so he made his debut February the 15th, 1967 on the flat. Uh, and he was ridden by Ben Hanbury. Future yeah. classic winning trainer. How how did he come about to be riding Lascargo? He had been down in Sussex with Captain Ryan Price, a very well known uh, national hunt trainer, who, uh, for reasons I won't go into, had been closed down for a while. So there were a lot of um, Ben Hanbury in the book, a refugee from Sussex. He was basically a refugee. His um, the job that he had. Uh, he had to find something else rather quickly. He uh, he told me he met Dan Moore in the Irish bar in Cheltenham. And Dan Moore said, uh, Dan always called everybody Sonny Boy, even women. But everybody worked around the yard, he called Sonny Boy. And um, he, he literally said, all right, you know, why don't you come over and uh, help help us out in Ireland? Sunny boy, and we'll see how it goes. And he stayed there for a few years, rode a fair few winners for him. In 1967, Lascargo had six runs on the flat, two wins. In 1968, he then went hurdling, and he won at the Cheltenham Festival. Yeah, he won a he won a division of Gloucestershire hurdle. They, they had so many runners in those days that uh, it was it, it was just after the mouth epidemic, so the season was completely thrown. Uh, upside down and they had very big fields uh, for a while the, with these horses who hadn't been able to run the Gloucester hurdle was split into uh, two divisions and he won a division of that so yeah absolutely his first yeah. visit to Cheltenham he was a winner yeah he was a regular visitor to Cheltenham wasn't he eight times a promising hurdler then he then in 1969 ran in the in the champion hurdle one yes by he did which I didn't actually know until I'd um, uh, started researching this book. But yeah, I mean, I guess the truth is he was uh, he was a very good novice hurdler, but not quite a top uh, quality hurdler. He, he, I think his jumping wasn't quite economical fast enough to, uh, to 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 be a top hurdler. But I mean, Persian War. Um, I think uh, Robin Oakley's book about the top hundred uh, racehorses in England and Ireland. I think Persian War is, he rates Persian War as the very top hurdler of all uh, from memory, certainly one or two. He rates him above Istabrak, for example. So it shows you how good Persian War was. And Night Nurse, he rates him above Night Nurse as well. Uh, so this was very, very strong opposition. But nonetheless, I think, uh, you know, it, it certainly he, he came sixth. He wasn't runner up. He was second in the betting. He was kind of thought to be. Persian War uh, isn't as good as he was the previous year. The obvious alternative was target. It didn't really work out like that. They always thought he'd make a better chaser, though. Yeah, I, you can just tell from the, the the calendar. I think it's only three or four weeks after that champion hurdle. 
he's running in in really quite a good people chase the, the power gold cup i think it was uh, the uh in less than a month after the champion hurdle and he did very, he almost won he came second so yes they as soon as they, they could obviously see after that race that he wasn't quite good enough as a hurdler to make it worthwhile continuing so yeah they and and Dan, Dan, Dan Moore, you know he was known as a, a trainer in races but i think it was always on the cards that Lascargo would go chasing uh, relatively early. Well, he made uh, giant strides as a chaser and um, winning the Cheltenham Gold Cup in 1970 and 71. But prior to that, he had some trips across to America. What can you tell us about those? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, he went to Belmont Park, which was, you know, this massive venue. Um, Almost like a you know a team sports stadium in a way uh, on the edge of New York. He won one race there, uh, but then when he entered the most valuable race at the time on the U.S. Uh, chasing calendar, uh, he came up. He he was close up third. He didn't quite he didn't quite win it. Um, Chasing was very different in the US than it was over here because the fences were softer. And so the horses there tended to know very quickly that they could brush through them. So they'd, they'd jump low and fast. And, and obviously, you know, if horse who's used to in Britain and Ireland, it's, it's, it's very different. He then, they then sent him back uh, the following year when uh, something called the Colonial Cup starting which was a race funded by uh marion dupont scott scott dupont uh who was a uh dupont is a people may have heard of a chemicals company and making gunpowder for the first world war so her family became incredibly wealthy she decided because steeplechasing was being uh kicked out of the big cities in the US, it needed a bit of a boost. And so she came up with this, at the time, extraordinary purse of $100,000 for a steeplechase um, that I think they were hoping would develop into a, almost a world championship. Uh, and this 1970 Colonial Cup, uh, if people look back through the race, they'll see it had the most extraordinary field. It had both less scargo and French tan, uh, Crisp came from Australia because they paid the transport fees for quite a lot of horses. And Crisp actually, I don't think, ever returned to Australia. He, uh, after the race, he was taken back to, he went back to Britain with British horses to join Fred Winter's stable. Uh, Toby Balding, I think, sent a horse over. Um, there were some French horses uh, it was a really absolutely extraordinary field. All, 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 all the top uh, U.S. chasers of the day were there. And uh, the U.S., the first three were, were, were U.S. horses. Again, conditions being so alien for the Europeans. Gaga was the best European horse coming fairly close up fourth. And 1970, as I said, in 1971, he won the Cheltenham Gold Cup. The first year as a 33 to 1 outsider. And only as yeah. a seven-year-old. Yeah. Um, 
That's right. No, they, they didn't really see him coming in 1970. There was a there was a very very good horse at the time called Kinloch Bray, who was uh, expected to win. Uh, he also was owned by Anne Duchess. He raced in the colours made famous by Arkle. Um, but he came down in the in the race three home, and that meant the race was between uh, French Tan and Lascargo. And uh, Lascargo always had his measure. Yeah, 1971 was very different because um, he was very heavily fancied to, to win then, partly because uh, a lot of the horses that were supposed to be his main rivals, uh, one after the other, dropped out for all sorts of reasons. So um, the main alternative fancy in the 71 race was a horse called Leapfrog that the Drapers had. Yeah, Arkle's old yard. Um, but Leapfrog was a younger horse, and uh, Lescargo, Carberry always had him comfortably uh, in their sights. And I, I think, I think it was ten lengths. Lescargo won by it. Was was fairly comfortable in seventy one, partly because a lot of the the bases weren't there. But he failed in his attempt to become the next Arkle and win the race three times in a row. Yes, um, that was a very good race in 72. Um, and I, again, it's only when you sort of go through and watch these things very closely. If you were um, uh, looking at the race uh, with two fences to go, coming down the hill around the bend, uh, he was in pretty much the same position as he'd been in the previous two. And he just uh, suddenly seemed to, to, to run out of gas. He, he jumped the, the second last poorly. Um, he was starting to hang right when he jumped uh, by that time in his career. It took a while for them to correct. Um, and he didn't quite have the speed that he possessed um, in the, the, the two previous years. Uh, and so, yeah, he was just run out of it in the closing stages, and uh, ended up fourth. Uh, still just ahead of Chris. It was a really good field, really good race in 1972, won by a mare, Glen Carrick Lady, who uh, was a very good horse written by Frank Berry in his first ride at Cheltenham, I think. So that's quite a good start. And after that, the quest then became to win the Grand National. You mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but can you sort of let listeners know the sort of the connection that Raymond Guess and his family had with the Grand National and Dan Moore? And Dan Moore, yeah. Well, uh, Raymond Guest was... Uh, sort of smitten by the race as far back in 1928. His father, although Raymond Guest was American, his father was a British MP who served in the cabinet, succeeded uh, Winston Churchill as aviation minister. Uh, he, uh, this was in the 20s, as I say, and, you know, at that time, if you became fashionable and wealthy, you quite often acquired some racehorses and uh guest wasn't really a, uh, he he was he was a polo player rather than a, a horse racer but at, at that time he obviously he decided he wanted a race and bought a very good horse called coco who won the 1926 Cheltenham gold cup under someone else's ownership so he had high hopes of winning the 1928 grand national uh, and as part of that process, Raymond became, his son became smitten with the race. Uh, 
not least because the runner-up that year was a bizarre race, actually, won by a hundred outsider called Trip Prairie Tim. But the only other horse who finished was a, was a, a, an American horse, a very good horse, um, called Billy Barton. And uh, that's when Raymond Guest fell in love with Grand National. Uh, Dan Moore, the trainer, uh, 10 years later, the year that uh, Battleship, who we mentioned just now, won, uh, he won basically by a nose from a horse called Royal Danielli. That was as close as he came to winning the Grand National as a, as a jockey. He also desperately wanted a trainer to make up for that. Funnily enough, it, it, <laughs> the, the, the jockey who came third in that 1938 race, Jimmy Brogan, uh, was Lescargo's initial owner. So it's funny how these uh, patterns uh, in retrospect. So he first ran in the Grand National in 1972. He's he's brought down. 73, he's third in the famous Red Rum and Crisp race. Yeah. And second in 1974 Red Rum until victory in 1975. Yes. Uh, it's quite unusual. Um Horses often um, go off the race and Aintree with its big, particularly in those days, big dark fences. You know, after after a race or, or two races there, quite a lot of horses have had enough. They they don't want to know any. Uh, Lescargo was one of those ones. He's almost the opposite. He disliked it, obviously, at first. Um, and... Uh, you know, it gradually appears to have grown on him. Certainly, he you know, he he took it in his stride by by the end. It's it's probably uh, I would think another feather in the cap of the trainer Dan Moore that, that he you know that process happened. And at the time, the Grand National is going through a phase when it could be the last Grand National as well. Yeah, and the uncertainty probably wasn't quite as intense as it was in the sixties. But, but yes, before the 1975 race, there was another convulsion where Bill Davis, who who bought it from uh, the top end, as we, as we said, um, he was uh, property type, very ambitious man. He had these huge plans for the race course, uh, which involved redeveloping it, but also developing the the racing side, um, and he given a you know huge press conference in January or February of that year with huge new plans, including a new £100,000, quote, winter derby. Then just before the race, uh, something went wrong with the negotiation. And uh, suddenly it swung from you know, intense optimism to intense pessimism. About a week, you know, there were headlines saying Grand National looks in doubt all over again and things like that. But it was pretty quick. It was pretty quickly over within a week. He also had a horse uh, by then who was intended to, to run in the race, but very sadly died on the beach within a few days of the, of the race just while he was training. Yeah, a very strange uh, lead up to the race. And partly as a result of that, um, you know, this extraordinary sporting occasion where a local horse would be going, Red Rum, this is not Lescargo, a local horse would be going to achieve something that had never been achieved in history, winning a third straight race. Um, there are only 
people usually say eight or nine thousand. I think more more accurate. It's probably about twelve thousand at the at the race. It was very very uh, poorly attended. That Grand National. It's such a shame because um, it would have been even more of a shame had Red Rum had got this hat trick that year. But it was an extraordinary race with uh, you know Lescargo, Red Rum. And the third horse, Spanish Steps, as well, they're all sort of regarded as all-time greats of the race. People, by and large, if, if you ask people for their sort of grand national, grand national within living memory, let's say, they by and large come up with the 73 jewel. But 75 is not far behind. It really was a very high-quality race. I love the... Um footnotes that you regularly feature in the book and uh, <laughs> they really add a lot to it uh, i must be a bit of a nerd but one of the one of the other things that uh, really caught my my eye was after the race uh, bruce hobbs the 17 year old who rode battleship to win in 1938 he sent a telegram to dan moore yeah that's right which is a, a, a very nice touch very eloquently put as well. It was something like, um, uh, I'm glad you didn't win the race as hockey, but i uh, glad you did win it as a trainer. It was very, very well put. It was more eloquent, more elegant than that. But yes, very nice time. And Lescargo did run one more time in the Kerry National, and that caused quite a stir. Uh, yes. It, first of all, it caused a stir at the race course because he ran so well. He was just beaten. Uh, again, he had to carry a very heavy weight. He was, he was one of the reasons he didn't write, win more races. He was a bit like Arkley. He was always carrying uh, two or three stone more than most of his rivals, and that was certainly the case with Gary Nash. So this, you know, this great old national hero. And you know, nowadays, the Irish win most of our big races, but. Bear in mind, Liscargo was the first Irish horse to win a Grand National for 17 years. There wasn't another Irish winner until 1999. So he was kind of a national hero, unexpectedly coming back and, and running in this um, it's a, it's sort of a mini festival type, a very sort of buoyant atmosphere. So he got this huge cheer as he, as he was running the finish and, and, and they, they were glad to see him back. But um, Raymond Guest, who'd gone back to America by that time, like a lot of owners, they, you know, if their horse wins a Grand National, he, he'd taken the view that, you know, the horse didn't owe him anything. He'd already achieved so much. He wanted to be retired. And he'd given him to the Moors on the understanding he'd be retired. Uh, the Moors raced him because, like a lot of racehorses, you know, they're not machined. You can't, you can't just switch them off. And they had they, they really had the feeling that he was Lescargo was missing racing, uh, which may very well have been the case. So you can understand both their points of view. Uh, but actually, Raymond Guest was um, quite unhappy that uh, this had happened. And he ended up uh, taking the horse back to America. And he was, you know, he lived in the lap of luxury for the rest of his life. But it's a bit of a shame because it, it meant you know, he wasn't, he didn't have 10 years of, you know, going around Ireland being fated as a national hero, which he probably would have done had he stayed in, in Ireland. Yes, because in the Kerry National, he was riding in 
Mrs. Joan Moore's colours, not yeah. the uh, not the chocolate and pale blue colours of Raymond. Not Guess. the chocolate and pale blue, which yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah. So uh, who knows? I saw um, Arthur Moore, Dan's uh, son, interviewed just this weekend about the race. <laughs> I, he 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 said, "Oh, there's no reason why he couldn't have won the Grand National again." Well. <laughs> Not sure about that, but uh, it would have been interesting if they'd taken each other on again in '76. My goodness, is he a forgotten horse? He's the only other horse apart from Golden Miller to win the Cheltenham Gold Cup and the Grand National. And yeah, yeah well, yeah, he certainly doesn't get the uh, kudos that he deserves. I think partly because he was so soon after Arkle, and he also he wasn't, you know, something like Arkle had a or at least human beings perceive that he had a character. You know, you, I mean, how do you know what's going on inside a horse's head? But he had this presence about him, Arkle, mother horses. And Lascargo, uh, by all accounts, really didn't. He just sort of, you know, arrived at the race horse and got on with the job sort of thing. So possibly it's partly because of that. Yeah, as, as I say, when I when I was um, thinking about doing this, I, I, I was just amazed that nobody had written a book about him. So I think he is a forgotten horse, yeah. I think you said he ran it, the Cheltenham Festival, was it eight times, nine times? Eight times, yeah, eight times. One, three, um, second once, I think, and fourth a couple of times. Maybe I mean, second think- twice. He ran, he ran um, I mean, the last two times, he, they, they were basically just warm-ups for the, for the Grand National. He, he ran in uh, short races that they knew he, he wouldn't feature in but it was just to sharpen him up for entry so you can almost discount the last two times the only reason the uh the penultimate the seventh time he ran at Cheltenham is important is because it was the first time he wore blinkers moors were uh were related to uh the probably the preeminent jump racing family in america called the smithics and some american horses that they were associated with like inkslinger uh Coming over and running in Britain at that time again because jump racing wasn't doing too well in America, and um, I think it was Mikey Smithick, uh, according to Arthur Moore, saw Lescargo running and said that horse needs blinkers. So um, that's why he ran in blinkers for about the last eight or ten um, races of his life. Uh, it's quite interesting because most people, if they do have a memory of Escargo, I find it invariably uh, involves him wearing these, uh, I think, rather unsightly blue blinkers that he had on. But he only, he, he only wore them last year and a bit of his career. It's quite interesting. I thought what summed up his remarkable career was a, a spell in 1970 when he ran in the Cheltenham Gold Cup in the March and then... Yeah. In the October, he ran in the Irish Cesarowicz. November, <laughs> the Colonial Cup, which we talked about earlier. And then in December, he ran in the Irish Sweeps Hurdle. Well, and obviously carrying big weights in all those races. He was amazingly versatile. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I rate him so so highly. Um, I mean, that happened mainly because of money. The, the, the Colonial Cup was incredibly rich purse i think even even though he only came fourth i think that was one of the biggest wins money-wise in career the irish sweeps hurdle was also uh, a very rich race that's why 
some chasers uh, went in for it. The Cesarevich he ran in because, as I say, they knew that uh, US jump racing was at a faster pace because the jumps were easy. So they wanted to sharpen him up for the. For, but he ran in two Cesarevichs. But quite a lot of uh, Irish. Future Irish national hunt horses ran as Cesarovich in, in, in those days, e- even w- once they'd already started. It, it wasn't as unusual as you might think. Um, it's quite a good test of stamina, I suppose. It's a very interesting period for racing because um, in Europe, uh, there was a lot of money coming in. It's, it's the time when uh, corporate sponsorship by uh, drinks and tobacco companies was starting. So a lot of interesting new. Uh, initiative but by corporate money in britain and ireland at the time so it's it's quite an interesting uh this this win he had the first win he had at haydock park um uh, that was another new event where the uh the guy whose idea it was he was he was he, he wanted to try and replicate knockout football he staged heats if you like around the country at different race courses where if you came in the first four, you qualified for the grand final at Adop Park. So that was another, you know, new initiative. Racing was was full of them in the, the early 70s. One horse he rode or raced against, you're going to tell me how many times. You've mentioned the horse earlier in the podcast, but Spanish Steps, how many times did he run race against Spanish Steps? And yeah which when you when you get that sort of rivalry i mean it's it's the closest you get really to um you know this the sort of well co-ovet i suppose you know the the matchups that you occasionally get in human sport and i mean he usually had spanish steps measure but of course you know because racing is a sport involved handicapping i.e trying to set the conditions so you get close finishes um you know it's hard to be absolutely you can be sure that that pound for pound lescargo was a better horse than spanish steps but you know the, the conditions containing on the day you could never quite be sure i think it, i think it ended up eight two or something in lescargo's favor well hopefully your book no snail will mean that he's not as forgotten a horse as perhaps he has been uh, how have um, reviews been going for the book? Oh, uh, pretty good, I think. And um, because of the, uh, I mean, I'm Foynaven before. I think people, I, I'm, I'm now a known quantity, so people knew what to expect for good or for good or bad. Uh, so yes, I, I hope so. I, I actually, with the fiftieth um, anniversary of his Grand National win coming up in a couple of years, that that'll probably help as well. Uh, um so uh, i i mean help him to be remembered is what i mean uh so yes i hope it will uh, he certainly deserves to be uh dragged out of relative obscurity well thank you very much david for this trip down memory lane about absolute uh, pleasure steve thank about lascargo uh, thank you very much for joining me on the paddock and the pavilion thank you very much for for having me steve Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pad. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review.
Social Podcast Network.